You know, one thing I pray every day, and I've prayed this for years, is that God would bless people at Calvary financially, and that as he blessed them, maybe with a raise, an inheritance, a, a promotion of some kind, a bonus, a sale of a property or a business, that they would have a heart to invest that in his kingdom's work, maybe even right here at Calvary, their church. And I'd invite you to join me in that. We've just got these final days to land the budgets. Kind of the tray tables are up, you know, our seats are in the upright position. He was saying, a little tricky right now, it's a moving target because we have such a busy summer and paying for those various bills of the different ministries and then to land this is so important and God has been so good to us. I know that I would just ask you to be praying. I know as I pray about what God is doing and how God will provide for our church, um, God often nudges me in specific ways in giving, and I just invite you to join in praying that God would provide in these last final days as he's shown himself faithful so many times before. Now, I am really glad to be here this morning uh, because just Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, into Friday night, and into Friday as a whole, I felt miserable. I had a little kidney stone, and from time to time, these things can be a problem for me, and they were a problem. I had a fever, I had nausea, I had aches, and kind of my, my skin was doing that quivering thing or that thing where it feels like it's just sore on the surface and just miserable. And in the middle of the night on Thursday or into the early hours of Friday, if you'd ask me if I would be preaching this weekend, I'd say, no way, I'm never preaching again. I'm never going to survive. I'm, this is it. It's over. It's the big one, Elizabeth, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> quoting Fred Sanford. And, uh, but man, just got some relief and got some things from my doctor and I guess it's gone. And turn the corner and just have a lot of energy and really just what I went through Thursday afternoon and through the night into Friday and then to be here today and be able to preach last night with energy and be able to preach today with energy. It's a real turnaround story just physically. And today we're going to talk about uh, the God of turnaround stories. We worship and serve the God who is all about taking stories that look like they're heading in this direction that's devastation and, and it looks awful and it brings hardship and sadness and he can turn those stories around. If you open your Bibles in the book of Esther again of the Old Testament, we're gonna be looking at Esther chapters seven and eight in our continuing study of this incredible book that never mentions God. So how can we talk about the God of turnaround stories in a book that never mentions God? It's because his fingerprints are all over this book. When you understand the other 65 books of the Bible and you look through the lens of what we know about God, you don't have to mention his name in this story of Esther to fully understand what's going on. Maybe you've walked in here today and it's just been decades or years or months, that, that thing has just been gnawing at you, that heaviness, that cloud. Uh, life has been overwhelming you. Maybe it's been weeks or days that you've been going through something and it's just so heavy and it seems so overwhelming. You think there's no way anything can change that. I wanna tell you today that if you know Jesus as your savior, you walk with the God of turnaround stories. And today as we look at Esther chapter seven and eight, I want us to understand that when life overwhelms you, Remember, you walk with the God of turnaround stories. Sometimes that happens quickly. For me, the last few days, it seemed to happen pretty quickly, physically. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. Sometimes the turnaround story isn't experienced in our lifetime. 
But it doesn't mean he's not the God of turnaround stories if it doesn't happen within our definition of when it has to happen. He is the God of turnaround stories. Just ask Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold by his brothers into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned. And then the turnaround comes when he's pointed second in command to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. <clears throat> Just ask Jochebed, Moses' mother, about what she thought when she released that little baby into the Nile in that basket and how it seemed like there was gonna be certain death for this child. But then the turnaround story comes as the princess of Egypt picks the baby out of the water and ultimately raises him. And Decades later, God would use Moses to lead his people from slavery to the promised land. Just ask Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church as a religious leader. He was killing people for their faith in Jesus Christ in the early days of the church. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changed. He became one of the greatest proponents of the gospel the world has ever seen. Just ask Lazarus, who was dead, and Jesus raised him from the grave. Our God is the God of turnaround stories. Some of you could tell your own story of how your life was heading one direction and you met Jesus, or how your life seemed to be going in this path as a follower of Christ and seemed so far from what God would have for his child, and you saw God's hand turn things around. We're gonna look at this God of turnaround stories in Esther chapter seven. Now, I... I love teaching, and I love teaching a story like the book of Esther. And I've struggled to recap each week as the story has gotten compiled. You know when you binge watch a television show, sometimes at the bottom it says recap. You can skip the recap. This is the recap, but you can't skip it. And just to keep it concise, for those of you who have missed the last few weeks, if you missed the last few weeks, I'm gonna give you a quick recap to catch you up. And then go back and watch those videos. Go to calvarywestlake.org and you can watch those sermons, those first three sermons. This is the fourth in our series of this 10-chapter book, Esther. Now, from chapter one to the beginning of chapter three is nine years. The entire book is 10 years. So chapter one to the beginning of chapter three is nine years. Then chapter three to the beginning of chapter five that we looked at last week is a matter of days. And from chapter five through the early part of chapter eight, is between 24 and 48 hours. So what we've been looking at last week, we're gonna look at today, all occurs almost within 24 hours, maybe about, about 36 hours. As we open to Esther chapter seven, you can go there in your Bibles, go there on your mobile device, a Bible app you might have. We're in the middle of the fifth century BC and the Persian Empire dominates the world under the treacherous dictatorship of King Xerxes. An evil and powerful man named Haman tricked Xerxes into declaring a law that would destroy all the Jews everywhere 11 months out. Xerxes had no idea what people group he'd approve for extinction. He was also unaware that his wife, Queen Esther, was herself Jewish. Haman was unaware of her Jewish heritage as well. She hid that from both men due to strong racism toward the Jews throughout the empire. Esther had been an orphan and was adopted and raised by her much older cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai told Esther that she might have become queen for such a time as this. She could plead with Xerxes to stop the Jews' annihilation that was coming months out. When given an opportunity to ask Xerxes to save her people, instead she asked him to a private banquet that night for her, for Xerxes, and the evil anti-Semite Haman. Just the three of them. At the banquet that night, she had another opportunity to ask the king for whatever she wanted. For whatever reason, she 
hesitated and simply asked that he and Haman would dine at another banquet with her the next night. God used Esther's hesitation to turn around so many of the circumstances of this incredible book. Haman plotted to have Mordecai executed in the morning. However, Xerxes couldn't sleep that night and was reminded of Mordecai saving his life five years earlier. So instead of Haman executing Mordecai, Xerxes had the evil Haman celebrate the Jewish man Mordecai publicly. Unfortunately for Haman, it was the worst day ever for Haman. That's the bad 24 hours for Haman. And it was about to get a whole lot worse in the final hours of this short period of about 36 hours of history in the book of Esther. Now let's look at Esther chapter seven and verse one. So the king, Xerxes, and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. This is the second banquet. She hesitated at the first. All that occurred, the insomnia and everything overnight. And now the second banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. He said this to her three times, and we know this idiom is, you've got a blank check. Check, what do you want? I know you've come to make a request. We had the dinner last night, and spit it out. What do you want? Now what's interesting is, as you trace Xerxes through this book, you really don't get the full impact that history gives of this man. He was an evil, deadly, arrogant, lustful, greedy, horrible man. And yet God is weaving Xerxes into the eternal story of his people. God had promised his people that a Messiah would come from them. And here we are 500 years before the Messiah arrives. And God is moving Xerxes and the events in the palace there in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. I believe as Americans, we ought to vote. We ought to be engaged in, in the civic opportunities God gives us. It's a responsibility and a right that we have to speak into government. That's important. But we also have to understand that whether we have a king, a prime minister, a president, a dictator, whatever we have, our God can work in that person's heart. Whether we agree with a local official, a state official, a national official, that doesn't stop God from doing what God wants to do. God is using Xerxes here. So we need to be careful that we don't go into an all-out panic and think everything's over. Our God is still in control when politics aren't going the way we want them to go. He hasn't even slipped off the throne to one side. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant me my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people, the Jewish people, be spared. 11 months from now, they're all supposed to be killed by their neighbors. You put this into motion, Xerxes. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate. Now that's interesting. Those three words were exactly a part of the edict in chapter three that Haman sent out under Xerxes' signature, tricking Xerxes, it told the people of Persia on this specific date, 11 months from now, you are to kill your Jewish neighbors and take their stuff. We'll take a tax from that, but you get to keep all the rest of it. And the wording of the decree back in chapter three was, you're to kill, slaughter, and annihilate the Jews. And so she quotes that. She knows what it says. 
Our people are to be destroyed. We've been sold out. You were told you get so much taxes by Haman. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would remain quiet for what would be too, that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Xerxes is confused. What, you're gonna be destroyed? Who are your, your people are gonna be? What are you talking about? Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? You are my wife. Who would do this? Can you imagine Haman there? It's just the three of them at dinner. Xerxes, Esther. It's been a very bad day for him. And he just sort of slides down in his seat. and There's the table, you know. And Who is it? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is their adversary and our enemy. Him, he's the guy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen, probably swallowed deep and hard. Then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life. Now, we understand from very clear customs and rules of the Persian Empire that were recorded that it is considered a treasonous act for someone to stay in the presence of the queen or anyone in the harem when the king leaves the room unless you're a eunuch. And Haman was not a eunuch, so he doesn't leave the room. Xerxes goes out, he's angry. He's, what am I gonna do to this Haman? And Haman stays inside to beg for his life. He pleaded for his life with Queen Esther for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, he kind of trips into the couch. Now we saw God was in King Xerxes' insomnia. He was in all the details of even Esther pausing at that first banquet and not asking, not making the great request that Xerxes save her people. And now we see Haman tripping and falling onto the sofa or the couch where Queen Esther is sitting. For he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace, from the palace garden. Some would say, this is really bad luck where this is karma getting Haman. No, this is the sovereignty of God, even in his providence, designing this divine appointment, this moment. This is not a coincidence, a bad coincidence. This is something God designed so that even the impression that he was somehow attacking the queen with the king right there is left in the mind of the king. And the king explain, ex exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling doom. You have violated the king's trust. This is treason you're going to be executed. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale him on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. About 24 hours earlier, Haman had said, I'm, this Mordecai is irritating me because Mordecai refused to bow to him as this great leader in Persia. And so he, he set up this big pole to impale 
Mordecai, which would have been a common way to execute. Many may have been executed that morning. Remember the twist, the, the, the turnaround there in the story was that instead of impaling Mordecai on that pole, he celebrated Mordecai publicly as if Mordecai was the successor to the empire, to the emperor. And so now he is killed on the very thing that was designed to kill Mordecai. It's interesting that the scriptures give a principle in Proverbs 11:8, the righteous person is rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked instead. And that principle is really carried out here in Esther chapter seven, when Haman is killed on the pole he designed to kill Mordecai on. It's also interesting that in this story, the guilty dies in place of the innocent. When the ultimate of all turnaround stories, God's plan of redemption, centers around his son who he sent to walk on earth to live a sinless life and as an innocent lamb, Jesus was placed on the cross and took the guilt and shame of your sin and my, my sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the one who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, sin our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. The innocent one took the place of the guilty and the great turnaround story of God's redemption. Then the verse goes on to say, why did he do that? So that we might have the righteousness of Christ placed on us. In God's plan of redemption, Jesus took my sin and he offers to me his righteousness and forgiveness and life all through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we come to that place that we put our faith in Christ as our Savior, then our sins are removed and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we become the righteousness of God in Christ. We're covered with it. If you're here in the room, you know that you put your faith in Christ. You stand in his righteousness. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, Understand what the innocent lamb of God did for you, what he took for you. He went in your place to the cross and suffered the agony of your judgment and punishment there. Rest your faith in Jesus. Just stop where you are and say, okay, God, I get it. I know I, I don't measure up. I'm a sinner. I put my faith in Christ. And immediately, by God's grace and goodness, you'll be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and have a relationship with him now and forever. I'd love to chat with you. I'll be in the lobby. We keep our, par our prayer and care members come down after the front of the service to pray about any need you might have, but they're here to answer questions about what it means to know that you have your faith in Jesus. You can also just text the name Jesus, just one word, text one word Jesus to a simple number, 58568. Just put that number in, 58568, and text Jesus and we'll get you some resources, we'll follow up with you so that you can understand what it means to know that you've put your faith in the one who took your punishment, who took your guilt and shame upon him on the cross so that you could be clothed in the righteousness of God. The story continues. So Haman is dead. The turnaround is happening. And in verse one of chapter eight, on that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. All that Haman owns, it's yours, Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. I'm Jewish, he's Jewish, he's my 
cousin who raised me as his daughter because I was an orphan and, and I love this man. Uh, then king took, the king took off his signet ring, verse two, which he had taken back from Haman. This is his authority in the ring and gave it to Mordecai. He is lifting Mordecai up to second in charge in the Persian empire. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. She says, Mordecai, you take care of that property. I'm living here at the palace. I can't do that. That's yours. Verse three, then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter to Esther. She went into his presence uninvited again. He allows her to do that without being killed. So she rose and stood before him. Esther said, if it please the king and if I've found favor with him and if he thinks it is right, if I'm pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, who ordered the Jews throughout all the king's provinces to be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Do something, Xerxes, do something. Stop this slaughter that's coming. And by this point, it's about 10 months out. Some weeks probably transpired, I believe, between verse two and verse three of chapter eight. She says, do something. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. I've taken care of Haman. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. Remember the law of the Medes and Persians? Not even the emperor could take back a law. So he says, you can make any decree you want, but you can't take that decree back. You guys are gonna have to figure this out. So messengers went out with a decree, the next couple of verses say, and we read in verse 11, the king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. Okay, Jews, there is this thing, your neighbors can kill you and take your stuff, but you now have the right to kill those who try to kill you and take their stuff. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province throughout the 127 provinces of the empire who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of the enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. The same day, their Persian neighbors are told they can kill them in Haman's plot to annihilate the Jews, to wipe them off the face of earth, Then a decree goes out, we read in verses 13 through 14, it goes in every language, it's this, this announcement goes out to the Jews, you can defend yourself against anyone who would attack you. Verse 15, then Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of the blue and white, the great crown of gold, and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. Look at the turnaround story here. Mordecai was set to be executed. Haman was wearing these kind of clothes. And now Mordecai is in the position where Haman had been. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. They didn't want to just slaughter their neighbors. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday, which we'll talk about next week, known today as Purim. 
And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves for they feared what the Jews might do to them. There are even people saying, you know what? We've been so rude to you in these weeks leading up to these 11 months and this whole thing. And you know what? We're Jews now. (laughs) So what do we learn about the God of turnaround stories? Again, when life overwhelms you, if you know Jesus, you walk with the God of turnaround stories. Seven things you need to know about the God of turnaround stories from Esther 7 and 8. Number one, while he exists, this God of turnaround stories exists outside of time and space, he walks with us inside them. Our God transcends time and space. He's not defined, he's not confined by them. We are. But he didn't sit out in the universe, wind everything up and say, good luck. Oh, and by the way, you've messed up, so now you need to figure out your way to being saved and rescued so you can be restored in relationship with me. You gotta come find me. No, our God sent his only son to us to walk on earth with us. He sent salvation to us in his own son. And now he says, within time and space, I will walk with you. He's given us the Holy Spirit inside of us to walk with us. So what's our response to this God of turnaround stories who chooses to engage with us inside time and space. Don't take your relationship with God for granted. Lean into it. Open up God's word. Spend time in prayer. Get engaged in a small group. Get involved in a ministry team. Show up for corporate worship. Engage in what God is doing. Lean into your relationship with God so you'll be able to notice his fingerprints in the events and situations of your life. Secondly, the second thing you need to know about the God of turnaround stories, while he may seem silent for a season, he is never absent for a second. Let me say it again. While God may seem silent for a season, he is never absent for a second. Again, God appears very silent in the book of Esther. But I dare anyone to say, God wasn't involved in the book of Esther. Dr. Tony Evans says, when God is silent, he is not still. God does some of his best work in the dark. Trust him. How do we respond to the idea that even when God seems silent to us, he's not absent? How do we respond to that? Don't forget he is always with you. Listen for him. I didn't say look for him, I said listen for him. Even as we talk about the importance of being in a small group or having a Bible study, a prayer group, a ministry team, people that you're a part of, small groups are a great way, as you saw in the video, to get in the lives of others. And you say, oh, I don't need anything right now. I'll join a small group when I need something from others. But others might need you. You see, part of how we, how we thrive and flourish as believers who are in a broken world with broken people and we're broken people ourselves, part of how we flourish is we listen to the stories of what God is doing in other people's lives and then they speak into our lives on how they went through different circumstances. We need each other. We don't just show up at church or open our Bibles or pray or spend time together in small groups and Bible studies when we think we need something. We show up to share life together, to listen for what God is doing in others' lives and ultimately to listen to what God is saying to us in our relationship with him. I meet people who say, you know, I, I just, God is so silent. And I'll say, well, 
Have you opened his word? No, he's just so silent. I like how someone put it. Don't say God is silent when your Bible is closed. (laughs) Thirdly, another thing you need to know about the God of turnaround stories, while he seems to ignore our deepest pain, he's leveraging it for our greatest good. God, don't you see what's going on here? Look at the finances. God, this is, this is heading toward divorce now, this marriage thing. God, did, did, did not get the signal that this cancer needs to be gone now? Sometimes we can feel like God is ignoring our pain. We talk about this a lot. He's leveraging it for our greatest good. A lot of people love to quote Romans 8, 28. It's a great passage. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Yes, so some people, that mean, they think that means more can, candy, more cash, and more cars. It'll be better. And, and the way I want it to be better. And yet you gotta read verse 29 because they're linked. 28 says, yes, all things are working together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. Then verse 29 says, God is conforming us to the image of his son through the good, bad, and ugly. Through our deepest pain, he is shaping us so that we will live in love like Jesus in the ups and downs of life so that we will be a bright light and salt on earth as we live in love like Jesus in the midst of the trials and struggles and the ups and downs, the successes and failures. And the world around us will say, what's different about him? What's different about her? And they'll be drawn to Christ through the living testimony of Christ in your life. And yes, sometimes in your deepest pain, he's shaping you and making you more like Jesus. So how do we respond to that? Don't let your circumstances define you. Let your God say who you are. Don't let that bankruptcy define you. Don't let that divorce define you. Don't let that cancer define you. Don't let that addiction define you. Don't let that death define you. Don't let the struggles you're in define you. Listen to God. You are his child, and he is conforming you to the image of his son so that his glory will shine and you will find deep satisfaction when you walk with him even through the deepest and darkest valleys of life. Don't let your circumstances define you. Let your God say who you are. Fourthly, while he may not reveal what lies ahead, he always goes before us preparing the way. There's a great principle in Scripture. You can see it in the book of Esther. God goes before us. Some of you know this week there's an appointment you don't want to be a part of. There's a meeting at work. There's a meeting with a doctor. There's a financial thing going on. that just I'm so dreading that. I, I, don't, I don't want to be a part. It's, it's going to be tomorrow, Sean. Not just this week. It's, it's tomorrow. It's Monday proving that rainy days and Mondays do get us down. It's Monday. God goes before you. When Moses was handing the baton to Joshua, the nation of Israel, after 40 years under his leadership, are gonna march into the promised land, and he won't march in with them, but he gives them in Deuteronomy some final words he wants them to know. As their experienced leader, he says in Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Jesus said to us as his followers, I am with you even unto the end of the age. 
The writer of Hebrews would quote Moses and say, be content because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What's our response? Yeah, you say, God, tell me how that's gonna go. Tell me what that's gonna be like. I want you to... He may not reveal what lies ahead, but he always goes before us preparing the way. How do we respond to that? Don't let tomorrow rob you of today. Live today knowing that God is already in your tomorrow. Jesus said, don't take thought for tomorrow. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let tomorrow take care of itself. You walk... Today in my kingdom, he says. And then when you step in tomorrow, into tomorrow, that'll be a part of my kingdom when you step into it. And I'm already there. God is already into your Monday. God is already into your Tuesday. Remember, he, he exists outside of time and space. He's already into your Thursday. He's already into your September meeting, your September appointment, your September test, or that September bill. He's already in your tomorrow. Can I just encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, each day this week, talk about today with God and then say, God, tomorrow is yours. I'm walking with you here today and I'll meet you in tomorrow, tomorrow. God, tomorrow is yours. You're already there. I'm gonna walk with you in my today and tomorrow I'll walk with you because you're already there. Just tell him that each day this week. Give him your tomorrow Fifth, the fifth thing you need to know about the God of turnaround stories is while he seems to be doing nothing obvious, he does his best work when no one notices at all. He's not mentioned anywhere in this book. He's not mentioned in chapter seven and eight, but look at what God is doing. What's our response? Don't assume he's doing nothing. Learn that his ways are not your ways. Sometimes I pray and pray and pray in this direction and then God answers in this direction and I'm kind of scratching my head and I say, that's not the way I would have done that. And then I look back months or years later and I go, wait a minute, that wasn't the way I would have done it, but what do you know? God knew what he was doing. What do you know? Don't assume he's doing nothing. Learn that his ways are not your ways. Six, the sixth thing you need to know about the God of turnaround stories, while he seems to allow evil to go unchecked, he will ultimately ensure no evil goes unpunished. Sometimes in this life, we look at people who took advantage of us or took advantage of others, who, who acted just totally in a, a despicable way. We, we even know criminals who've committed felonies, who've, who've hurt people desperately. We read about them in the news, or we know about what happened to a friend and what took place in this situation, and we just say, that just doesn't seem right, and they seem to have gotten away with it, and that person got away with it, and this person got away with it. No, it may seem like evil goes unchecked. It might have seemed that way to Esther and Mordecai for days, but ultimately... He will ensure no evil goes unpunished. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God said, vengeance is mine. You don't have to worry about that. So what's our response to this God of turnaround stories? Don't worry about evildoers getting what they deserve. Leave that to God. You don't have to fret and worry about Somebody got away with this. They will answer to God. It won't be karma they answer to. It'll be the God who made them in his own image. 
It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this judgment, the scriptures tell us. Seventh and finally, this last thing you need to know about the God of turnaround stories. While he appears to have given up on some things, humanly from our perspective, he promises ultimately to redeem all things. We look at this story and we think it all worked out for them, but they still don't know what the future of the Jewish people looks like. They've been under judgment for 100 years. They're returning to the land. Things are still in disarray. Even by the time Esther and Mordecai die, it doesn't look like there's been a real turnaround story for the nation of Israel. Things are still unresolved. There still are question marks over God's plan and purposes. And sometimes in our own lives, we look and we say, it looks like he doesn't know what's going on over there. He doesn't know what's happening in this place. And, and, it just, and some of us will step into eternity and we may not even see the end of the turnaround in our lifetime. Because we say to God, by the way, I want that turnaround story in my lifetime. And God says, I'm working something much bigger than you that is for your good, the good of others, and my glory. And sometimes you won't see that turnaround story in your lifetime. So what's our response? Don't conclude that anything in your world is irreparable. Look to your Redeemer. Don't conclude that anything in your world is irreparable. Look to your Redeemer. Don't say to yourself, That's it. you know what? That person died. This situation happened. That cancer took that life. That bankruptcy happened and they never, you look and you go, what in the world was God thinking? Don't think God's divine plan is over when a human life comes to a physical end. God is still working. In 1534 and 1535, the king of England, Henry VIII, the religious leaders in almost all of Europe was looking for a man named William Tyndale. He had done something so heinous that he deserved to die, to be put on trial and die. What had he done? He had started to translate the scriptures into the English language so that English-speaking people could read the word of God for themselves. He was arrested and he was put through a monkey trial. He was in prison for 500 days. And then the punishment came. He would be publicly strangulated and then his body be burned at the stake. So on the platform in the public square, as they're carrying out the strangulation of William Tyndale, he shouted his last words that were clear to everyone present, history tells us. He yelled, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then he stepped into the presence of Jesus. Tyndale's story looked like it wasn't a turnaround story. God wasn't there in time to stop the execution, the martyrdom. But two years later, things had turned around so much that King Henry VIII paid to have the scriptures translated into English and then got a copy to every church and made it available to anyone who wanted to purchase it. What was a threat to him two years before was now important to him as king of England. The final prayer of William Tyndale was answered, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And the word of God and the gospel began to spread through the lives of people who had never read the word of God for themselves before. 
did William Tyndale's story have a turnaround? Yeah, I believe he was a part of what the scriptures call the great cloud of witnesses. And he was there standing beside his Savior when the scriptures were being translated into English. And he said, ah, there's the turnaround. There's the turnaround. Some of us get that immediate turnaround like I experienced the last few days from something physical and something so simple as a kidney stone. Like that. Some of us, it's months, it's years. Some of us, it, it almost takes a lifetime before we see that thing turn around. And for some of us, the turnaround will be something we celebrate with our Savior because he's working something bigger than our lifespan. In February, a man started attending Calvary. His name is George. It's the name I'll call him. He was Jewish in background, but not very religious at all. And he'd worked for decades in this area, grew up in this area. Never really had any interest in God. And you might say he was far from God. And he came to Calvary and started attending each week and began to get more interested. And God started to open up his heart and People started pouring into his life, a variety of voices. I had a few opportunities to speak into his life personally, of course, as I was teaching. One time we were sitting talking, he said, I've read the case for Christ. Man, it's so good at who Jesus is. And then he said, I'm reading the purpose-driven life and it's telling me what it means to walk with God day by day. And then he said, I read that, that book, Not In It to Win It, that you gave from, from Andy Stanley. And boy, that's really, and I said, man, you like to read. You've been with us just a couple of months and you've read all these books. And he said, I hadn't read a book for 10 years, but I just can't get enough of this. I was reading the Bible every day. And then he said, oh, and, and, and I'm, I'm reading your book, your memoir about your mom. And so I, I wrote uh, the memoir of my life of growing up in a home with a mother affected by traumatic brain injury that caused havoc and hell in our home growing up for Troy and me, the only kids in the household, and for my dad. And mom was institutionalized. It was all kinds of stuff, but she loved Jesus. And so I tell that story in all but normal Life on Victory Road, what it was like on Victory Road in Mishawaka, Indiana, growing up in that setting. And I said to him, well, you, you know far too much about me now. He said, no, I'm really enjoying it. It's helping me understand who Jesus is. And then he came to Christ within the last couple of months, the last couple of six weeks or so. He told me about it, and we celebrated, told others, we celebrated. And two weeks ago, he was baptized at the beach and brought a whole bunch of people with him. George sent me a thank you note because I'd been one of the voices that got to speak into his life. And in the thank you note, he said some personal things of our interaction. And then he said, and I want you to know, your mom's influence is still alive. Now, my mom died suddenly, spoiler alert. She was never healed of the mental, physical, and emotional troubles she had. Some could look at her life and say, there was never a turnaround there. But I believe even as tears came as I read his note to me, that Jesus was looking at my mom saying, there's that turnaround. Your story is being used. Whether we told it in a book or not, her story so impacted us that we can't help but share Jesus and the hope, the only hope that's found in him. I don't know what the turnaround story you're looking for is. Maybe you've experienced one or two or many. But ultimately, our God is the God of turnaround stories. It may not happen in the timing and the way we want, but it's a part of something he's weaving for our good, the good of others, and his glory. And if you feel overwhelmed today, remember, you walk with the God of turnaround stories. And whether it's here on earth or someday in heaven, standing next to Jesus, looking at what is continuing here on earth, 
you're gonna be able to celebrate with Jesus the turnaround story of your life. Give your tomorrow to him. Lord, tomorrow is yours. I'll meet you tomorrow in that. I'm gonna walk with you today and then I'll show up tomorrow knowing you're already in my tomorrow. Trust him with the outcome. Walk with him and find joy, peace, and satisfaction in the twists and turns of this life. We walk with, serve, and know the God of turnaround stories. Father, help every one of us understand that you're weaving something bigger and broader and better than we could ever imagine. Lord, I've seen how you've used people's lives just in a couple stories of my personal interaction. You turned around the story of George and yet the turnaround story for my mom is still happening and lives being impacted. And as George shared that, what a blessing. Even to have William Tyndale as his dying breath ask for a turnaround in the king's heart and that came but when Tyndale was with you. Help us, Father, as your children to trust you. Sometimes you give us great turnarounds now or over a period of years and sometimes it's a part of what we enjoy and experience with you in eternity. And I pray for those who seem overwhelmed today. I pray that they would know you are the God of turnaround stories and you're sovereign over us in every way. Be glorified in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.